Chapter 14 of Thomas Wingfold Curate by George MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14 Jeremy Taylor. One Tuesday morning in the spring, the curate received by the local post the following letter dated from the park gate Respected Sir, an obligation on my part which you have no doubt forgotten gives me courage to address you on a matter which seems to me of no small consequence concerning yourself. You do not know me, and the name at the end of my letter will have for you not a single association. The matter itself must be its own excuse. I sat in a free seat at the Abbey Church last Sunday morning. I had not listened long to the sermon ere I began to fancy I foresaw what was coming and in a few minutes more I seemed to recognize it as one of Jeremy Taylor's. When I came home I found that the best portions of one of his sermons had, in the one you read, been wrought up with other material. If, sir, I imagined you to be one of such as would willingly have that regarded as their own which was better than they could produce, and would with contentment receive any resulting congratulations, I should feel that I was only doing you a wrong if I gave you a hint which might aid you in avoiding detection. For the sooner the truth concerning such a one was known, and the judgment of society brought to bear upon it, the better for him, whether the result were justification or the contrary." but I have read that in your countenance and demeanor which convinces me that, however custom and the presence of worldly elements in the community to which you belong may have influenced your judgment, you require only to be set thinking of a matter to follow your conscience with regard to whatever you may find involved in it. I have the honor to be, respected sir, your obedient servant and well-wisher, Joseph Polworth. Wingfold sat, staring at the letter, slightly stunned. The feeling which first grew recognizable in the chaos it had caused was vexation at having so committed himself. The next, annoyance with his dead old uncle for having led him into such a scrape. There in the good doctor's own handwriting lay the sermon, looking nowise different from the rest. Had he forgotten his marks of quotation? Or to that sermon did he always have a few words of extempore introduction? For himself he was as ignorant of Jeremy Taylor as of Zoroaster. It could not be that that was his uncle's mode of making his sermons. Was it possible they could all be pieces of literary mosaic? It was very annoying. If the fact came to be known, it would certainly be said that he had attempted to pass off Jeremy Taylor's for his own, as if he would have the impudence to make the attempt, and with such a well-known writer. But what difference did it make whether the writer was well or ill-known? None, except as to the relative probabilities of escape and discovery. And should the accusation be brought against him, how was he to answer it? by burdening the reputation of his departed uncle with the odium of the fault? 
Was it worse in his uncle to use Jeremy Taylor than in himself to use his uncle? Or would his remonstrance accept the translocation of blame? Would the church-going or chapel-going inhabitants of Glaston remain mute when it came to be discovered that since his appointment he had not once preached a sermon of his own? How was it that, knowing all about it in the background of his mind, he had never come to think of it before? It was true that, admirer of his uncle as he was, he had never imagined himself reaping any laurels from the credit of his sermons. It was equally true, however, that he had not told a single person of the hidden cistern from whence he drew his large discourse. But what could it matter to any man so long as a good sermon was preached, where it came from? He did not occupy the pulpit in virtue of his personality, but of his office, and it was not place for the display of originality, but for dispensing the bread of life from the stores of other people. Yes, certainly, if other people's bread was better, and no one the worse for his taking it. For me I have none, he said to himself. Why then should that letter have made him uncomfortable? What had he to be ashamed of? Why should he object to being found out? What did he want to conceal? Did not everybody know that very few clergymen really made their own sermons? Was it not absurd, this mute agreement, that although all men knew to the contrary, it must appear to be taken for granted that a man's sermons were of his own mental production? Still more absurd, as well as cruel, was the way in which they sacrificed to the known falsehood by the contempt they poured upon any fellow the moment they were able to say of productions which never could have been his, that they were by this man or that man, or bought at this shop or that shop in Great Queen Street or Booksellers Row. After that he was an enduring object for the pointed finger of a mild scorn. It was nothing but the old Spartan game of steal as you will and enjoy as you can. You are nothing the worse, but woe to you if you are caught in the act. There was something contemptible about the whole thing. He was a greater humbug than he had believed himself. For upon this humbug, which he now found himself despising, he had himself been acting diligently. It dawned upon him that, while there was nothing wrong in preaching his uncle's sermons, there was evil in yielding to cast any veil, even the most transparent, over the fact that the sermons were not his own. End of chapter 14, recording by John Sherman, Winfield, Illinois.